Welcome to the East Memorial Student Podcast, your source for the biblical teaching of East Memorial Student Ministries. I'm your host, Matthew Ronsky, pastor of Students and Discipleship at East Memorial Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. Well, it is good to be back with you all tonight, and tonight we are going to be continuing in our discussion on communist theory. In fact, we are going to be wrapping up our discussion on communist theory before moving to some of the other other topics. But before we jump into it, let me read you all several quotes of poetry. Any poetry fans here at all? Anybody, Anybody a few? Okay, anybody read verse on the regular basis? I think that's what it's also called. Okay, Easton? Never? Okay. <laughs> All right, well, you're going to get introduced some, to some poetry. All right, here's the first poetic verse. Thus heaven I forfeited, I know it full well. My soul, once true to God, is chosen for hell. All right, second, second poetic lines. All right. The hellish vapors rise and fill the brain till I go mad and my heart is utterly changed. See this sword? The prince of darkness sold it to me. For me, he beats the time and gives the signs. Ever more boldly, I play the dance of death. <laughs> All right, next one. This one's even, even more intense. Here's this one. So a God has snatched from me all my all in the curse and rack of destiny. All his worlds are gone, gone beyond recall. Nothing but revenge is left for me. I shall build my throne high overhead. Cold, tremendous shall its summits be. For its bulwark, superstitious dreads. For its martial, blackest agony. Then I will be able to walk triumphantly like a god, through the ruins of their kingdom. Every word of mine is fire and action. My breast is equal to that of the creator. I wish to avenge myself against the one who rules above. All right, can you guess who the author of these poetic quotes are or is? Karl Marx. That is right. There we go, Josh. Karl Marx, that is right, who we've learned the father, father of communist theory, wrote these quotes. He was quite a fan of poetry, according to some of his biographers, and, uh, and these are his. These are his quotes, and you know, it's interesting, last week in last week's lesson, we discussed how, how communism is inherently atheistic and anti-God at its core. And, but it, isn't it ironic that here Karl Marx, in this poetry of his, uh, seemed to acknowledge and even identify with the prince of darkness, the serpent of old, who we know as Satan. Well, tonight, with that in mind, we're going to continue ex- examining the philosophy of communism, looking at a few more pillars of communist thought. And then we're also going to look at the communist solution uh, to fixing the world's problems as they see it, and then ending with the true origin of communist theory, the real source of this philosophy. 
So jumping into it, let's look at the first pillar of communist thought that we're going to look at tonight, and that is this, that inequality, it's the belief that inequality is the source of all evil. I got a quote here from Pope Francis, and he says, inequality is the root of all evil. Now, you might ask, why am I quoting Pope Francis in a message on communist theory? Well, here's what you might not know. Pope Francis grew up in socialist Argentina. He has said to journalists that as a young man, he read many books of the Communist Party. And one of his early political mentors was a woman named Esther Balestrino, who he worked for for a time, and he described her, Pope Francis, that is, as a great woman and a fervent communist. So it is well known among many that Pope Francis is very sympathetic to communist ideology. He was even by one conservative commenter called Lenin's Pope, that's in reference to Vladimir Lenin, who we were introduced to uh, last week, and he took that as a, as a general compliment. So Pope Francis is sympathetic to the communist ideology, and here he says, inequality is the root of all evil. Now, you might be thinking, what is that behind him? Uh, Well, thank you for asking. This is what's behind him, this statue right here. This is in the Vatican. It's the papal audience hall. There's his throne in the middle there. And then if you zoom out to the back of the audience hall, here is the next view. This is the Vatican audience hall right here. The center there is where that statue is. And if you're thinking, what does that look like? Does it look like what I think it does? Well, here's a view from the outside in the sky. Yep. Now you might ask, okay, that's another topic, another discussion why the... Vatican Hall is designed after a serpent, but I don't want to get digressed too much. So we'll, uh, we'll go back to the background and continue our thought. All right, just a little tickler there, but we're not going to get too off track. But okay, Pope Francis, we read his quote, sympathizer to communist ideology. And really what his quote expresses is a summary of, of communist belief about the source of evil, which is inequality. And really what we could say that two guys like Karl Marx, thinkers like Karl Marx and some of the other leading communist thinkers, all evil and suffering to them originates from a world system of unequal social structures. Social structures that give some people privilege and advantage over other people. They believe, if we kind of break this down, so what do they believe? They believe that in the world there are the haves and the have-nots, or the privileged and the underprivileged, or the wealthy and the poor, however you want to break that down. That's how they, they see the world in that dichotomy between those two, and by dichotomy I just mean a kind of a... a a two-part separation. And they believe that the privileged, the the haves or the, the wealthy, that they are in their position of privilege and advantage because of their social relations, 
For example, they may, um, are born maybe into a wealthy family or they are employees of a, of a company that um, becomes very successful and is able to pay them a lot. Or they're part of a political party that gains power. So this is what they mean by social structures that, that give somebody privilege over other people. And, and what they then believe is that this inequality, this inequality between groups of people based on these social structures, that this inequality is the source and cause of all conflict, all violence, destruction in the world, all evil in the world. And, and what they believe is that if you, if you break it down again into two different parts, they, they view it, well, the powerful... They, and this is and what I'm explaining here is, is why they believe that this inequality is the source of conflict. And, and here, here's how they kind of see it. The powerful oppress the powerless to maintain or increase their power. So that's one side of it. And then the second side of it is the oppressed people or the underprivileged, they then lash out in frustration or aggression because of their underprivileged status or their oppression. That's how they, they see the conflict in the world. It's either the powerful that's trying to keep or increase their power, or it's the oppressed that are lashing out in, in frustration. We could think of it, I, I, I was thinking, okay, how am I gonna illustrate this? Think of it like a birthday party and a birthday cake. All right, and what, what I mean by that is, imagine you have a birthday party and all the people are there, and then you have this birthday cake, and the birthday cake symbolizes all of the wealth and privilege in the world. We can think of the birthday cake as that symbol. And so how they think the world functions is that the host of the party pulls out a card and says, okay, all of the kids wearing the red shirt are gonna get first in line. And all the kids wearing any other color of shirt, they're gonna get behind the kids wearing the red shirt. And so the kids in the red shirt, they get in front of line, okay, they have this privileged status, this position, and they start taking from the birthday cake. And as they take from the birthday cake, they start taking more and more, and all of the people not wearing a red shirt, they're left out. That's how they view the, the power, powerful people taking advantage through their position of privilege. They got, the, they got to the front of line. And then they view all the other kids, all the kids without the red shirt, as getting frustrated and then saying, well, we need to take the cake for ourselves, and we need to usurp or, or take down the red shirt patriarchy or the red shirt establishment. That's how they view the world. And in this conception of the world, the communist not only believes that inequality is the source of evil, but they believe that those who are in the position of power and that the power structures that they participate in or are members of that those power structures or powerful people are the drivers of this evil. They're the ones that perpetuate or continue this unequal world system because they want to maintain power. So they try to constantly keep down the oppressed and keep them from gaining any power for themselves. This is how the communist thinks. And, and why do they see the world in this way? Why do they believe this? Well, if you remember from last week's lesson, they don't believe in a God who is the giver of wealth. They don't believe in the God of Scripture who makes poor and makes rich or who blesses some 
and doesn't bless others. They believe in a world that's governed by survival of the fittest. They believe in an an evolutionary, materialistic world where it's survival of the fittest. Therefore, the fittest or the privileged, they are only powerful because they have gained power or privilege at the expense of the weak. That's how they see it. Either they've taken from the weak directly or they participate in the social structures, they perpetuate the, you know, support the social structures that continue this inequality and all of the supposed evil that comes from that. And then when it comes to the oppressed lashing out in violence, they believe that for the oppressed person or the weak person, their violent response is just a natural and inevitable response to their oppressed condition. Kind of like a wounded lion or a wounded tiger that lashes out in violence or aggression. This is how they see the oppressed who rise up in violence. So for example, let's say you take gang violence in the inner city, carjackings, drive-by shootings, okay? The, the communist thinker, the person the, or, the, or those that believe in this ideology what they would say is that the gang member, they're not, it's not that they're evil or that they have an evil heart. That's not the cause of their violence. They're simply just re- responding and reacting to their underprivileged condition. That's why they're committing these crimes, carjacking, drive-by shootings. It's because, of, it's because they're oppressed. That is what the communist thinker or those that subscribe to that philosophy, that is how they view the world. And, and to be honest, on the surface, this explanation of the world may seem plausible at a very surface level. And it may even seem convincing, especially if the person is, or the, the, the person who is hearing this or learning this, if they themselves are materialistic, meaning that they don't believe in a God or, any, or in, they don't believe in any spiritual explanation of things, they may see this and it, to them, oh, okay, that makes sense. That fits, that fits my understanding of the world. However, the Bible, and we do believe in the Bible here, the Bible describes the source and driver of evil differently. And so that's what we're going to turn to. And here is a biblical response to this conception, this communistic conception of the world, One, here's what the Bible would say. The source of all evil at the human level is not inequality. It's not inequality. It is the human heart itself. If you're in your Bible, turn with me to Mark 7, verses 20 to 23. It'll also be up on the screen here. Mark 7, verses 20 to 23. And here... This is the direct teaching of Jesus while he was on earth. And he says, starting in verse 20, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. 
all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Also in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So what we see just from these two passages and when we apply it to our topic tonight, what these passages teach us is that the powerful do not oppress the weak simply because they want to keep their power or gain more power. It goes deeper than that. Ultimately, the powerful who do oppress the weak, they do so ultimately because they are evil people with an evil heart. And this leads to a second biblical response, and that is this, relating more to the oppressed and underprivileged. We could say this, being in an oppressed or underprivileged condition, being in a bad condition or a poor condition does not cause violence or a lashing out in aggression. If you'll look with me in James chapter 4, we'll see an example of this. Really, we'll see the explanation of all violence, fundamentally. James 4, verses 1 to 3 The Apostle James says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust, or that's another word of just you desire, you strongly desire, and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, You ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So what we see here in James is that for the communist revolutionary or the social activist inspired by communism or really anybody that rises up in violence and commits murder or any violent act, that ultimately what motivates them, what drives them, what drives their violence is unsatisfied and unmet desire. Unsatisfied envy. And biblically, we also call that coveting. Thou shall not covet. That's what coveting is. Coveting is you see something that doesn't belong to you and you think in your heart, that should belong to me. I deserve that. I want that. And that is the source, unmet unmet desire, unsatisfied desire, envy, coveting. This is the source of violence and conflict between men. And you might recall that coveting and envying were two sins that were mentioned by Jesus in the previous passage that we just went through as sins that come from within the heart of man. Therefore, what we could say is that based on what we've covered, the correct way of interpreting conflict between men or between groups of people is really, it's, it's, it's not this inequality, it's, it's simply a destructive cycle of sin. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, some among the, let's say, the have-nots or the underprivileged, they envy and they lust after power. They want power, they want influence. 
And so then they rise up in violence and take by force. They come to power by force. They steal. They loot by force because of this envy and this unmet desire. And then what, now these people who formerly did not have power, once they come into power, the same sinful heart that was lusting and envying and coveting, that same sinful heart now produces pride that Jesus also mentioned, also deceit, sensuality, all of the sins of the flesh or of the, by flesh, the fallen sinful human condition, all of the, all of the sins that, that come from that, the, the hearts of the, these people produces those things. And then it then leads them to oppress the weak who are now under them. So now they become the oppressors and they continue, continuously, perpetually oppress those who fall under their power. And this is why when you look at history and you look at all of the communist revolutionaries that came to power, guys like Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, even Karl Marx before them, and there are a number of names we could, we could go through that once they do come to power and they achieve that power, they become the worst oppressors of their people, the most murderous and deceitful towards their people. And why? It's because their hearts are evil from the beginning to the end. It was evil when they were so-called oppressed, and now it's evil when they're in power, and it only becomes more intense and worse from that point on. Now, this leads us to our final, maybe we could say, pillar of communist belief or communist theory, and that is their theory of redemption. And I'm using a religious term because as we mentioned last week, communism is, in effect, a religious belief system. And so what is their theory of redemption? What, what do they believe is the solution to fixing all of the problems and conflict in the world? What would they say? Well, let me ask you this question. Don't answer out loud. But if we think about it in a question form, if the true communist believes that inequality is the source of all evil... And if they believe that inequality is fueled by unequal social structures that privilege some over, over others, then what could we imagine is their solution to this problem? If they think the social structures are perpetuating this inequality that then brings all sorts of violence and conflict, what is their solution? Well, what we find is that the communist solution or their plan of redemption is literally to destroy all existing social structures that privilege people. All existing social structures. I have a quote from the Communist Manifesto. This is the book that was written, um, co-authored by Karl Marx and really is where this philosophy became popular. And here it says, the communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. In other words, in order for us communists to achieve our goals of bringing in this perfect world with no violence and no conflict, we need to destroy 
all existing social structures. This means religious institutions, churches, private wealth, private businesses, and even the family itself. What do I mean by that? Well, I have a quote here from what used to be on the BLM website, Black Lives Matter website. And you might remember if you were here last week, uh, I quoted from one of the founders, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. And she said that the co-founders were trained Marxists. They were trained Marxists and they were very much committed to that ideology. And here's a quote that used to be on their About Us page on their website. And this is just one paragraph in it. It says, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and quote, villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children to, do, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are co comfortable. In other words, one of our goals, one of our purposes is to disrupt the nuclear family, mother, father, children. That's one of their stated goals in the Black Lives Matter organization. So we see this is an example of that philosophy coming to the surface, that desire to destroy all existing social conditions that even applies to the family. Well, what's the biblical response to this, this communist theory of redemption? What is the biblical response to their theory of redemption. Well, we could ask it in another question form, and that's this. If sin, thinking now, putting on our biblical hat, not our communist hat, but our biblical hat, if sin and the condition of the human heart is the real source of evil in the world and the real source of conflict in the world, then what would the biblical solution be to eliminate evil and conflict? Well, the biblical solution is that God has to cleanse the sinful heart. He has to cleanse the heart, and then he has to remove the world's curse himself. If you're in your Bible, look with me to Ezekiel 36. We're going to read 11 verses here. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 36, and we'll see this clearly. We'll see the biblical plan of redemption laid out. So here God is speaking, and he says, speaking of a future time, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanliness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will, receive again, you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations." Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. 
I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all of your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste Desolate and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left around about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. So this is a long passage, but what this passage is promising is what we refer to and call the new covenant. This is the promise of the new covenant And what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus, he established this new covenant through his death on the cross. His blood was the blood of the covenant. And what he accomplished through that is one, he died to pay the penalty of of his people's sins, including ours. Then he rose from the dead after three days, demonstrating his victory over death, the penalty of sin. Then he ascended after some days with his apostles. He ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he sent the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, into our hearts, causing us to live righteously. And he has promised to return in the same way that he went up. And when he returns, he will break the power of the wicked on earth and restore the earth to its original condition, like it was in the Garden of Eden. This is what Jesus has accomplished. This is what Jesus will accomplish when he returns. And now, even though Ezekiel was written to the nation of Israel, what the New Testament also shows us is those promises, the new covenant promises, the promise for a new heart, for God's spirit to be within us and to cause us to walk in a righteous way that promise also applies to all of us Gentiles as well, not just to the house of Israel, but to the entire world, all those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, the question that is often asked when you talk about the promises of God and his promise for full restoration is, well, what's taking so long? Right? Because we still look out in the world, we see the conflict going on in Ukraine with Russia and the people that are dying there. There's many other conflicts, food shortages all around the world, evil that is being done daily. What is taking God so long? Well, there's one passage, and this will be the final passage we'll look at tonight. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, this is the reason that God is taking long from our perspective. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Apostle Peter says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In other words, the delay in Christ's return is not because God is slow. He's not a slow God. But he is a patient God who is patiently waiting, 
and desiring for all of the people that will come to repentance, for them to come to repentance and to believe in him. He is waiting. And when he returns, he will destroy the power of the wicked and restore all things. But he is waiting to send back his son because he does want people to repent and to believe in him. And he wants them to repent before it's too late, as Brother Glenn has been preaching these past few Sundays. And really, this even applies for us even in here. And maybe just I'll just say this, just add this little plug that even for us here, if we have not, I know we're talking about communist theory, but we don't want to lose sight of the fact that, hey, we are still sinners ourselves. And as sinners, we are still susceptible to the deceptions and the lies that we've been going through even in talking about communism. And so even for us, if we have not yet repented of our sins, if we have not yet acknowledged the evilness of our sins and then committed to turning away from them, then God wants us to come to repentance as well. And that patience of God applies to us as well. So as we conclude our teaching on communist theory, there's maybe one more question that we could ask and answer, and that is this, what is the source of communist theory? Where does this really, is Karl Marx really the source? If we think about it, is he really the father of communist theory? Well, what I would argue and what I hope that I've shown you all in these last few weeks is that communist philosophy or communist belief system is ultimately satanic in its origin and in its source. That this is a satanic counter-religion, a satanic worldview that attacks and seeks to undermine God's authority in the world. God's authority as the giver of wealth and God's authority as the sovereign Lord of all people and all things. And like Satan, there's a lie. Satan, remember, he's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And what's the lie of this? Well, the lie is that communist philosophy will tell you that if you follow our system, if you believe like we do and you fight to eliminate inequality, then we can bring, as people, as humans, we can bring in a new world order, a new Garden of Eden-like state. We can bring in a utopia, a perfect world system, if only we eliminate this inequality. This is their promise. But in reality, as we see, it does not bring peace or prosperity. What communist theory really brings is never-ending destruction and oppression. And how do I know this? Well, there's the biblical principle of you judge a tree by its fruit, right? Jesus taught us this, that you judge a tree by its fruit, you know that a bad tree cannot produce good fruit, and a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. So in order to determine whether it's a good or a bad tree, you look at the fruit. And so what is the fruit of communism? Well, I know we talked a little bit about North Korea last week. Let me give you some few more statistics of other communist regimes. So we talked about Vladimir Lenin. We introduced him last week. Well, when he led the Bolshevik revolution in Russia called the Red Terrors, was a phase of it, it executed around 100,000 Russian citizens. 
in a, in a few-year period, 100,000. Joseph Stalin, he's one of the deadliest. He was the ruler that came after Lenin in Soviet Russia. He killed an estimated 20 million Russian people through the gulag, prison system, famines, and then just straight executions as well. 20 million. Mao Zedong, he was the, uh, the leader of the Chinese Communist Party for many, many years. He caused a famine in China, part of a program that's called the Great Leap Forward. Uh, kind of ironic, but that famine that came out of that killed an, between estimated 15 and 55 million Chinese people. It's one of the worst famines in human history. And the Chinese Communist Party was, was literally the cause of that famine. There was a guy named Pol Pot. He was a uh, communist dictator in Cambodia. Uh, back, he was in power from like, well, really the late 70s, so not too long ago. And he didn't die until the 1990s. He killed an estimated 2 million Cambodians in a relatively short period of time through just execution and, and starvation as well. And for perspective, 2 million Cambodians, that was about 25% of the country's population at the time. So if you think out of four people, one person is, is eliminated in Pol Pot's regime. And then to a much lesser extent, I don't want to necessarily equate it exactly, but we saw in the summer of 2020, the Black Lives Matter protests, the Antifa protests, organizations that we've seen are communistic in their ideology, we saw the destruction that their protests led to. And really, it's all tied to this same ideology. So to sum up, we see from the fruit of communism and everything that we've looked at, even the quotes from their own thinkers, that it is satanic through and through. Therefore, and I know, let me just say this, for a lot of you, okay, you're maybe early on in your high school career, middle school, you may think, what relevance does this have for me, okay? But if you are going to go to college, maybe Alabama schools are probably going to be a little bit more conservative, but you go to most colleges out there, your professors are going to be committed communists in their ideology, in their way of thinking. And most of the students that you are going to be interacting with in a big university are also going to be buying into some of these philosophies and these ideologies. So you need to be on guard. This is the time to learn this, to hear this. So when you do encounter this, you're able to protect yourself, you're able to guard your mind from believing in this deception and in these lies. And then here is a final point and really our takeaway. When you see the world's problems around you and the death and destruction that this world brings, the real solution and the hope that you and I have is in God and his plan of redemption. So let us look to him and his scripture as the source of all truth, as the lens by which to understand this world, and as the, we could say, rock of our hope for the future as well. Let us pray on these things, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord God, uh, we just thank you for another evening um, together here to sing songs of worship to you, to study your truth, and to examine the 
falsehoods of this world, Lord, and, and by doing that become better equipped to defend your truth and to defend your word. Lord, I pray for all these students. I pray for all of us tonight with the storms that are coming in that you would just protect uh, all of us, that you'd protect this town and this city from, uh, from any potential tornado, that, you would, your, that your protective hand would be over all of us this evening as we go back home. And I pray that for the remainder of this spring break, for those that are on it, that they would have a great time and that, uh, they would, that we would all just continue to live for you and to honor you every day. We pray all these things according to the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the East Memorial Student Podcast. For more information and updates about East Memorial Student Ministries, please visit our website at eastmemorial.org. You can also follow us on our Instagram page titled EMBC Student.